In today's episode, we speak with my friend, Dr. Ori Hample. We discuss building the correct foundation with the infinite banking concept, building, creating, and leaving a legacy for more than one generation. Then he also shares with us some pretty cool insights about free market medicine. I'm excited to have him, and I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. My name is James Nethery. I'm your host, and my friend Ori Hempel is with us today, and it's uh, kind of a unscheduled. I mean, we didn't know we would have this opportunity really until late last night, and so I'm as pleased as I can be to have you here to take the time to come here and sit down with us, Ori. Um, really, the background here is you know, we became acquainted last year, right? You're a physician in Houston, very familiar with um, life insurance and the status quo of financial advice. It's my firm belief that physicians, any, any high income earner, especially physicians and dentists, um, I have found that they almost have a target on their back from the financial industry. Now, I could be wrong. No, you're correct. And, you know, y'all are, from my perspective, y'all are very busy doing what you do. And um, you, in the collective as a whole, you rely on experts in the areas that, um, that are important so you can focus on your practice and sometimes those experts may not have your best interest at heart. That's been my experience. I've had good experiences with experts, and I've had bad experiences with experts. And I think, uh, obviously, the most important lessons have been the negative ones. Uh, but those lessons have also reaffirmed the positive ones. All right. I'm, I'm very interested in... Uh, some of the lessons you have learned, right? Can you share those with us? Sure. Um, as a, as a physician, there's there there are several things that are very important to me. One is uh, uh, protection of assets, and so life insurance life insurance products are uh, almost bulletproof against any sort of uh, liability uh, and li- liability and lawsuits. And the other thing is that you want to uh, build and build wealth, or if not even wealth, just build uh, an avenue of retirement. And uh, the various, quote, qualified, unquote, plans have limitations on how much money you can save. And, and they've got uh, very obvious other negative aspects. So... Um, I remember one of my first forays into listening to life insurance agents, et cetera, was that uh, I, I did have a, a term, initial term life policy to protect my family, and I think that's a given that somebody should do. But then I was trying to protect some assets, some cash, and I purchased an annuity. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a long commitment to of 15 years until the penalty phase phased out and then I can withdraw the money without penalty. Um, the problem with, uh, with uh, that annuity is that the return was extremely blunted and it was really the wrong product for somebody who was young and in their 30s mm. uh, to be involved with. Um, that's more of a product for, I believe, a different age group. And so that was a mistake, and I learned from that. And uh, Well, what'd you learn besides the long surrender charge in, in your 30s? Woo. I learned that uh, a whole lot, if I, had I put that money into whole life insurance, more specifically whole life insurance with a mutual company that's dividend paying, um, I would have been so far ahead Mm. I mean ridiculously far ahead how long did it take you to learn that lesson because we're going back in time the the time you purchased the annuity then we're going forward right and 
you discover or come to the realization that that might not have been the best thing for you to do with your money, although it's bulletproof in Texas when it comes to asset protection. Right. But the returns are blunted and how old are you? About forty at that um, time or uh no, I was I was in my I was in my mid thirties. And um and what I, I I learned many things. Uh but uh, uh what happened was it took me a long time to learn it because I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. And at that point in time I looked to protect my assets one with an annuity and 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 number two was with a uh, uh, a universal variable universal life insurance policy so you, you you discovered that annuity the annuity might not have been the best fit correct so then you were looking for something else or an advisor or an agent said oh well this no I I, I you know the reality of medicine is that I went into practice in 1998, and the most money I ever made was in the year 2000, as far as taking home money. Mm-hmm. And every year since then, I have been more efficient. I see more patients. I do more surgeries. I collect less money, mm-hmm. and my overhead rises. And what mm-hmm. I take home from my family is that differential in between. Mm-hmm. And that has been shrinking every year consistently. In some years, shrinking more than other years, but it's always a downtrend from the year 2000 till today. And so I made certain plans, but my plans proved that uh, I was making plans on what I was earning, except my earnings were decreasing. So that was one problem. Um, but what? Uh, but I found out other things is that you really have to have an agent and an insurance company that um, that are responsible to do their job as far as educating you as a client to know what you're getting in, to really make you understand whether it's appropriate for you, and to make sure that there's no errors. For example, that variable universal life insurance policy was growing. I was in, investing it well. And uh, a number of years later, probably about, I want to say about f- four or five years later, I hooked up with a different, with, with a new insurance agent. I was always looking for financial planning advice and mm-hmm. whatever. And he asked me to review my existing policies. And I said, Sure. And I gave him permission to do that. And then we got together, and he explained to me that my variable universal life insurance was a mech. Hmm. And my response was, what the heck is a mech? What's a mech? And he explained to me it was a modified endowment contract. And I said, that's great, but I didn't learn about that in medical school. Um, What does that mean? And he explained to me, well, all the favorable aspects of a life insurance policy were negated by the MEC, and so now it is taxed and treated like an annuity. And I said, okay, so why is that bad? He said, well, any money you take out of that MEC before age 59 and a half, you pay an additional 10% penalty. And I said, that doesn't sound real good. And he goes, and any money you borrow from your policy or anything you cash out, you pay an additional 10% penalty on. And he explained to me, and you and you become LIFO versus FIFO. And I said, what did, well, I'm like, I, I don't want I'm a physician, I'm not an accountant. I mean, I know lots of acronyms and initialisms, but I don't know that one. He goes, it means it's last in, first out, not first in, first out. So any money you withdraw, you're withdrawing your profits first, which get taxed in addition to the 10% penalty if you're under 59 and a half as ordinary income. Oh, and you're a physician, already earning a high income. So I'm already in relatively high tax bracket, which is, means that Uncle Sam gets to share in that a lot. And so, uh, and then the, the, whereas if had it been life insurance and not a mech, then it would be first in, first out, FIFO, which means the initial money you put in is already post-tax, so you don't pay tax on that. So all the positive aspects of that life insurance plan were negated, except, except for, the, for the creditor the protection and the death benefit. And the death right. <clears throat> and, uh, but, and then he explained to me that I should have been informed of this. 
And what happened was the agent that sold me the life insurance policy no longer represented the company. And so the company became my de facto agent and they were not good fiduciaries. But I didn't know any of this. So by the time this other agent educated me about my errors that I didn't know I was making at the time, it was beyond two years and an attorney told me I couldn't sue the company for being irresponsible and uh, unethical and whichever way, what else you can, uh, what other words you can describe them. And so there was nothing I could do except uh, uh, either pay the penalty upon withdrawing funds, I could move it and create another MEC policy. There were all these kind of other things I could do, but uh, I had uh, quite a bit of money that was suddenly unfavorable money and money that was not going to do what I wanted to do as far as providing me, you know, avenues of uh, having money available for retirement the way that it could. Right. And so uh, those are very important mistakes, which led me, you know, so with that agent, um, he explained to me several things. One, he explained to me something I already knew, which was that at the time I didn't have enough life insurance. And so, but then he recommended that I get a... uh, a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy. And it was with a mutual company. And uh, and what happened was it was right around the time that, uh, and, and, so, and so I did, I, I bought a policy, I actually bought two policies. Um, and uh, they were a little different. One was a universal policy, which I wouldn't do again. And the other one, because it has too much risk, because it has market risk, and there's no reason to do that. Uh, And the other one was a whole life policy. And I was content for a while. And I'd also explained to him that I really wanted to use this as a retirement vehicle. So what he recommended was that I would maximally contribute to my life insurance policy. And so what, what I learned was that most people, when they get life insurance, put the minimum amount of money mm-hmm. to maintain the policy. The death benefit. To maintain the death benefit. And and maybe save a little bit. Maybe put <clears> in a cushion there <throat> for in case it doesn't perform as well. Whereas what we were doing was using the life insurance as a vehicle for life insurance, but maximally contributing every year to the MEC limit so that it doesn't become a MEC. And he said that he and his company are very good about monitoring every single year. Mm-hmm. And of course, since I learned my lesson, every year I make a phone call to make sure we're staying below the MEC limit. And uh, even though I trust them, I still Verify. double check. I've, I've been <laughs> burned big time. So, so I've been maximally contributing. So what happens is, so what happened was, then a number of years later, I bumped into you at a Texas Medical Association meeting. And I bumped into a physician who was using life insurance plans and he was retired from practicing medicine and whatever. And you gave me a little soft cover book, mm-hmm. you know, Bank on Your Life. Uh, becoming Your Own Banker, right. R. Nelson Nash. Right. Yep. And, uh, and I read that book. It, you know, that's a one evening read. Right. And, uh, you know, even for somebody encumbered by significant amount of education, it still only is a one evening read. And uh, I appreciate uh, your comment, sir. <laughs> and um, uh, and it's, it, it really opened my eyes. So, interestingly, I took that book. I, I, I didn't take the book. I took the lesson I learned from the book. And I talked to my insurance agent. Mm-hmm. I said, well... Can I do this with those policies that I have? And he said, you can with the whole life one. You might do some of that kind of stuff with the universal, but you, the whole life one, you really can. I said, well, I, I, need, I, I need doing the math. I'm not saving enough money for retirement and, and at the time, and I, I knew that. And that uh, worried me because at some point I do hope to retire. 
and uh, um, and so I wouldn't be able to afford that. And so I got more life insurance policies. And we got life insurance policies on my wife and on my four children. Each of my four children owns their own life insurance policy. So we would gift the children money as saving, and that's something that my parents taught me. Sure. The, my parents saved college money for us by gifting us money and staying below the estate gift tax exemption limits, which has changed with time. Sure. And uh, so we had our own bank account, our own custodial bank accounts that our, our, my parents controlled and eventually were handed to my siblings and to me when we were adults. And, um, uh, and so I did the same for my children. I created custodial accounts for them and passed on some money to them. And that was, so for my first two children, uh, our, our college plan for them, we initially had a college plan for them, a 529 plan. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as I learned this stuff about these life insurance policies and I saw their power, and I didn't just see their power because I read the book, Right. I, I saw the power because I already had a policy that was performing amazingly and better than the initial illustrations. And uh, and all I did was make a payment once a year. I had nothing to maintain. I had nothing to look at. Um, no management? A phone call? Is this a Mac? What is a Mac? Limit? I didn't even have to make the phone call, even though I did. <laughs> so I literally, all I had to do was write a check once a year. And make sure that I save money because you have to have discipline to save money. That's an important piece. So each one of my so for for our younger two children, uh, we didn't do a five twenty nine plan. We just did life insurance plans for them, and it's their life insurance plan with their money. Mm-hmm. So when they're adults, they will have that as an asset. They actually have it as an asset now, and two of our children are adults, and they have that asset. And. Uh, and so what has happened then is, is we hooked up, a, you and I hooked up because I realized that I needed to save even more money for retirement. And, uh, and we got additional policies with you uh, for, for me and for our four children. And the... There's two aspects to this. One aspect is it forces us to save because our first priority is to make sure we save money and deposit it into the life insurance policies so they can grow and they can perform and we have that money for retirement. So that is our first priority is it forces us to save. And you're is the way the way you're saying that that's not a bad thing is it the no being forced to save accumulate capital right so before you spend money before you take a trip before you buy a car you know if you have one that works and you don't need a need a new car you think twice about it you say you know what let me throw the money into the the my life insurance policy um and then the second aspect of it was that by putting the money into a life insurance policy, I still have access to the money. What? And you're not 59 and a half? And I'm not 59 and a half, and I'm not retired. And I have access to that money tax-free, not tax-deferred. And that is huge, and we have used that. So we've used borrowing from our life insurance plans to make purchases and then we pay the life insurance company back so instead of using a bank to do banking we have used our own bank our own life insurance policies to do banking and whenever I wanted to do that I, I didn't have to fill out a loan application. I didn't have to sign 50 times like when you were finance a home or purchase a home. Mm-hmm. 
I made one phone call, and the next day, the money was an ACH transfer into the bank account, the regular bank account, and then I used the money. And then I would pay back that loan. Discipline. And, and it is just absolutely amazing how these policies have performed with essentially no risk to the point where this last year, uh, what I did was uh, I asked my life insurance agents to run performas on the various policies that we have. And I have policies with multiple insurance Mm -hmm. companies and Mm -hmm. with multiple agents, Mm -hmm. diversification. And I literally asked them, run if I start withdrawing money as loans and not pay them back, how much money can I start withdrawing on a regular basis at age 60, 65, 70? Give me those models. And then I know what if I want X number of dollars per year to live on in retirement, it exactly tells me when I can retire and how much more money I have to accumulate in order to retire. And the beautiful thing about this is that none of this is reported because this is a private contract. The FDIC and the federal government doesn't know doesn't know what I have because they don't care. Unless you told them. <laughs> and, and the reason they don't care is because they care about only what they can seize <clears throat> and and tax. And since it's a private contract in a non-taxable environment, the federal government doesn't care about me. It cares about me, but it doesn't care about that aspect of no, me they and my family. They still want you producing because they still want their share of your production. Right, they're, 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 they're doing well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, but those aspects of it were tremendous. Now, so when I look at this, and the, on so many levels, this is amazing. And the reason, especially with what I did with, with our children. Mm-hmm. What my wife and I did with our children is we created them a growing asset that when now the two are adults and two will be adults, God willing, someday, just not too soon. um, Time's ticking fast. Then they will literally enter adulthood with an asset, with their own mini bank. And they can use that money, they can borrow that money for their education, to purchase a car, down payment on a house, anything. Finance the house instead of using a bank. Depends how much money there is in there and, and how expensive their real estate is. And uh, and they will literally start life with a nest egg. And, um, uh, and that tool is just so, so powerful. What's that worth as a father? Well, I mean... I think we're supposed to take care of our children's children, and uh, a good man. You're a good man, and uh, we don't have grandchildren yet. It's not time yet, but uh, um, but when we do, the uh, the death benefit of my children will go to their children, and so this nest egg that I I started, that my wife and I started for our kids. Um, will actually benefit the following generation. The other thing that this does is, especially if you look at today's society where we're not taught to save, Mm-mm. and uh, is that my children know, my older children know, and the younger children will know, that their first priority when they go out into the working world is they need to first fund their life insurance policy and then they can budget everything else out so that they're saving and they're accumulating assets and protection throughout their entire working lifetime. 
I think it's a mistake that we start doing retirement planning when people turn 50. Mm-hmm. I think we need to start doing retirement planning when people are children because this sets up goals and parameters of what you, financial goals to accomplish throughout your life. So, you know, I think, and, 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 and it's important that I, di- I didn't get together with an insurance agent, and my wife and I didn't just set this up for our children and then just kind of manage it for them. It's important that we actually educated our older children about this is the asset that you have, and this is the responsibility that you have about contributing to it and about saving. And so you're not doing this for us. This is already for you. This is good for you, for your future family. This is what you're doing this for. And this gives you choices in life. And it's all about being in a position to make choices. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I appreciate you sharing that. You know, that couldn't have been scripted any better from my position. <clears throat> but you covered an awful lot. You know, when you... Um, 1999 or 1998 when you were earning the high income right and you're buying the annuity um that was really the beginning of a lesson that you know you didn't see at that time you had to look back and say, oh i learned that lesson then you moved into the mech you know you had the education of a mech through experience right um and then universal life right and whole life at the same time Right, and so by the time we've met, we're looking back, and you've already been—you were already paying substantial. I mean, you—you you understood life insurance, not being educated by the financial world or an individual. I mean, it was literally through your experience. You paid for your education, and one—and one very good agent, yeah, that explained it to me. Yes, no question. And the book that you gave me. So by the time we met, you really you already knew you were already doing it. You already knew to avoid the Mac, you know the annuities, FIFO and LIFO, and the taxation, and the access to the capital. How important that is, and and it's important to all of us. But um, by you putting your money into these vehicles and then discovering what is better and what may be more beneficial to you than other things, um, we meet. And, and and I'm I'm just saying by the time we met, right, and we got into you know deeper conversations, you were already, in my opinion, ahead of the curve, much from your experience and from you know your reading and your research or however whatever you did to learn more about this infinite banking concept. And and might I ask what what did you do? What what did you do to 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 learn more about this infinite banking concept specifically as Nelson kind of teaches it. Does that make sense? My question makes sense. What did you, did you reach out to YouTube? You know, you, you reading books and talking to your agents that you knew. Yeah. Well, I, I read that paperback book in an evening. And, uh, the thing is, as soon as, as soon as I started reading it, picking it up, it just, the light bulb started going off and I was like, I'm, where's this? Where has this been? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, when I realized I was sort of already maximally funding life insurance policies, thanks to that one good agent, that one agent that was good. That's still good, and he's still my it, agent, it, absolutely. And um, uh, and then I uh, I of course reached out to YouTube, and I watched uh, YouTube videos. I've seen you on YouTube many times. I've seen others on YouTube. Listen to podcasts from a variety of people. Um, and uh, some people, I could tell from their YouTube presentation that maybe it wasn't a, a match. Maybe I wouldn't trust them so much. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I've been on your email list for years. And uh, we don't beat you up with that, do? And you've you've never no, and you've never bugged me, and uh, and you know I'm the one that reached out to you after a while. I'm the one that reached out to you. I called you, and um, and 
the funny thing is, is that I have, you know, I regret the annuity that I did. I didn't lose money, right? But I regret the annuity uh, because I could have done better with life ins- with whole life insurance, dividend paying from mutual life insurance company. Um, I regret the universal life insurance that became a mech. I regret the other universal life insurance that didn't become a mech that I eventually converted to a whole life insurance policy later because I missed out on performance because I had some market losses. And um, uh, and then I, uh, but that wasn't my biggest regret. My biggest regret is I didn't listen to a life insurance agent that told me to buy a whole life insurance policy. And that was really my hangup. And it was my hangup because I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But his personality didn't match mine because he was very pushy. And he didn't explain to me what he was doing. He threw down illustrations from his own life insurance policies that he's using for his own financial planning and explained to me why I needed to buy a $5 million policy with a death benefit of $5 million. And at the time in my life, I was in my early 30s, and I was looking at the premium payments, and I didn't have that kind of money at the time. And, uh, and of course, my income went down since then. But I didn't have the kind of money that he was telling me I had to put away. And uh, I didn't know this. St- I didn't understand this, that this was scalable, that I didn't have to go $5 million. I could have done a $1 million policy. And um, I didn't understand maximally funding insurance. He didn't explain that to me. He didn't explain any of these concepts to me. He just told me, this is what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't do well with pushy agents. And uh, uh, you're the other extreme of that. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, I had to call you. Uh, but but uh, I don't do well with pushy agents, with people that are pushing me yeah. to do things. Neither do I. But I need to be, I need to be explained. You know, I'd like to think that you know I can understand things, but all of us need to have th- concepts explained to us in a way that we can understand, from a person we can understand, uh, that touches our the nerves that we need touched for us to open our eyes and open our light bulbs. And uh, and my regret is that this guy was trying to sell me a life insurance policy in two thousand and one. Mm. before I got the annuity, before I got the variable universal life insurance policy that became a mech, before I got the other variable policy, I literally lost over a decade of compounding. So in other words, had I listened to him and gotten a policy in 2001, had I then later, when I had additional money, instead of putting it in the annuity and in the variable universal, if I would have opened new additional policies or bank into this policy, I would be, those policies right now, 17, 18 years later, wow. would be in an exponential phase of accumulation. And I would be potentially retiring, or at least having the option to retire, or slow down, or change what I do, or how I do it. So I would be in a completely different financial position had I listened to him, but he wasn't the right person to give me that message because our personalities didn't match, and he didn't know, or wasn't, maybe he did, but he didn't do it effectively, explain to me what I didn't know and what I could have known. And so this is kind of the lesson is that I lost the most precious thing, which is time. Mm -hmm. I lost money because I would have done better than those other things, uh, those other products that were the incorrect products for me. And, but I would have gotten into this whole life insurance with mutual company that's dividend paying, which is what he was representing um, 
in my early 30s. And I mean, literally, I, I lost nearly 20 years of time, and that's irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. And that's and and the other thing about these whole life life insurance in general is the the premiums to maintain the death benefit relate on how healthy and young you are when you get your policy. So my children, who thank God are healthy and are young, their cost of insurance is extremely low. So their policies perform better than my policies where I'm older and my cost of insurance is higher. So this is what's what's so exciting to me about the policies that my children own is the negative lesson that I learned without even knowing that I learned about my missing out on 18, 19 years of accumulation because those policies would have been underwritten with me being 20 years older, younger. Right. With a lower cost of insurance. Right. And more time to exponentially accumulate. Right. I I agree, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I don't want to jump over to the, uh, you know, once all, whenever we discover this idea, this ability, we're it's from that point on we're playing catch up no matter who you are at whatever age you're at we're always playing catch up because of all the mistakes that we've made in the past for whatever reason right um but you you've done several things here in this in this short conversation you you mentioned your children and how those are structured right you're you're laying the foundation with you and your wife continuing the foundation with your children right now we're talking about a generational wealth transfer without uncle guido looking over our back and god bless the legal industry we don't necessarily have to create an estate plan every four or five years okay i'm not saying that you don't need one and i'm not saying that this negates the need for legal advice at all um but then the policies owned by your children that you have set up based on your knowledge and your experience, I mean, they're ultimately you and your wife's beneficiaries. So um, you carry substantial death benefits. You cannot buy life insurance without a death benefit. We're all going to graduate. That net death benefit is going to accrue to your children. They're going to have a place to put it, right? And the the, the beneficiaries by that time on those policies that are owned and on the children, um, I mean, the day after you graduate or shortly thereafter, the children are going to change beneficiaries right, to their children, the third generation. I mean, so not only do we all have to play catch up, um, your you're doing a good job playing catch up okay by expanding the foundation on what you've done i mean good job i'm just saying good job and when we first i say first i think it was last year when we had longer more in depth more precise conversations on your experience and what you wanted to do what you're doing what you're trying to do you were really ahead of the curve in my opinion i'm not placating you and at all i'm because you're here right now i appreciate that i'm just saying that from your experience and your due diligence with your efforts and and including your discipline you know maybe modeled by your parents um and then your profession you're doing a good job is my point by doing what you have done i mean there are very few people I've, i've been a licensed life insurance agent for 28 years and there's financial underwriting as well as health underwriting when you apply for and, and try to obtain life insurance. There, the financial underwriting is limited by your age and your income. Okay, And so there is no such thing in the 
in the real world of being overinsured. You know, we've all heard these things that I'm worth more dead than alive, etc. Um, there's a limit of how much death benefit any one individual can have, and it's limited by their age and their income or their assets. Very few people are fully insured with permanent whole life insurance. You're as close to fully insured as anyone I've ever met, so you've done a good job. And then you're extending that foundation to the next generation, which in by design has set the foundation for the third generation. That's pretty powerful. So no question, you've got to continue to play catch up. Everyone else does too, but you're leading the way for your family. Good job. Thank you. Okay. Did we miss anything, Mr. Griggs? I'm going to have to like clip that one little part out, this question. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Because I, well, go ahead. Let me, is there anything else you'd like to add to that, Tori? I'm, I'm just thankful that I learned these lessons. Of course, I regret I had to learn some of these lessons the hard way. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all imperfect, and uh, I think, you know, a smart person learns from their own experience. Somebody who's wise learns from somebody else's experience. I would have preferred to be a little wiser here than smarter. <laughs> um, and, uh, but the important thing is that I learned these lessons and I'm applying them. And it's an ongoing thing. I'm not done. Um, even this last year, I learned that uh, <clears throat> these policies are not quite ever fully funded. And I didn't know that. I mean, I've been doing this life insurance, various life insurance product uh, purchasing for 21 years, okay? And knowing all this stuff that I thought I knew. So last year, I finished paying off my first whole life insurance policy. So... I asked the question, I don't know what made me ask it, uh, from my agent, and I asked him, I really can't put anything else into that policy because then it's a Mac. I mean, I can't put any more in it. And he said, let me run the model. And he did. And I can. And it's not a lot. It's just a little bit of money. But I'd rather that money was growing that policy that it's in that is in now in an exponential accumulation phase because mm-hmm. it's it's uh it's a 10 year old policy and so um that was exciting and i said well why don't you run the models and all the other policies too and when they're fully paid off there's additional premium that they could accept and stay below the mech limit because I didn't realize this at the time, and this is what I learned just this last year, is that you got to rerun these models from year to year. You got to rerun these performers because the numbers change and the computers at the insurance company might allow you to put in more money to stay below that mech limit to make the product that you think is good even better. And so, I mean, I think the, the, the real, real, real lesson here is one, to have the discipline of saving, which, which I learned from my parents and my wife learned from her parents. Um, number two is to constantly watch your assets and review them and rerun them because they're dynamic nothing is fixed everything is dynamic and there's moving pieces and so you have to to you don't have to do this monthly once a year just once a year just rerun models ask the question are we doing everything are we maximizing everything and see if you need to make any adjustments and just be flexible 
to make those adjustments. Mm-hmm. We're, it, it's very easy when we look at a life insurance illustration to view that as fixed, and, and they are not. But another thing you mentioned earlier, too, is about retirement and retirement income and running these in-force illustrations in various ways that um, I, I encourage my clients to to think in thirds an awful lot of the time. If we take a whole life insurance illustration and just divide it up over thirds, um, you'll see an exponential curve within there. And I encourage in the first really section, the first third of a policy, the focus should be paying premium. Get as much premium in as you possibly can. And then the second third, and I'm segregating these out by thirds, right, as for ease of illustration. The second third, you should master that asset and the banking function as it relates to you and your in your personal economy. So you should know how to run a loan or request a loan and make a loan repayment. Um, but then the last third, that passive income in retirement, right? The collateralizing the cash value, tax-free income in the form of loan. Um, that's exactly how you manage that asset in the latter years of a policy. You manage that outstanding loan by running in force illustrations. Can you take a greater loan this year? Do you have to make a, a, a take a lesser loan or what have you? Um, but I don't I don't want to jump over that. You mentioned that just in conversation, but you're already looking right at at retirement in the in the future and, and you know how to and what to request and that's how you manage the policy in the latter years how much income can you take how long can you take it because when you look at those even though they're dynamic you're going to know when you can retire and how much money you can enjoy or not all right very very powerful very important and two now i just discovered this today um well let me let me see i slipped a question here what has it been like what is it what has it been like to share what you've learned with your wife and your children? Do they understand it? Yeah, that's a great question. You know. So my, you know, I, I've been blessed with uh, a brilliant wife and brilliant kids. And, um, and my wife understands this concept. I've explained it to her as best as I could. And uh, she understands what we're doing, and she's on board. And, and y- y- you need to have that. It's a, it's a partnership. No question. And, um, and she's completely on board. And my kids, um, are my older two children, our older two children, um, also understand it. Now, they're not fully into it. They just know, they understand it's there, they understand what it is, they understand a little bit how it works. My oldest child, our oldest child, he, um, uh, he actually used that loan feature. He took out a loan, made a purchase, repaid the loan back. Um, he saw how easy it was to access the money, like, at the age of 19. That's awesome. And uh, um, and so he knows that he's got an asset there. He's got his own little bank, and hopefully it'll be a big bank later. But he's got his own little bank that's very functional. And uh, and it was uh, it, it was pretty exciting to actually see it in action. I mean, you read about it in a little paperback book. It makes sense and it's logical to actually do it. It's amazing. Wait, like, he didn't have to. Uh, know what his credit score was. The life insurance company didn't ask him what his credit score was. And they didn't ask you to co-sign for that loan. You didn't have to. That is awesome. You know, it's, that's very powerful. And then, too, listen, I just learned this today. I didn't know this about you. Share with us a little bit about if we, you know, if somebody said, hey, you know, Ori's a pretty cool guy. I want to learn more about him. You're you're pretty active in some areas that I was completely unaware of until about 10 minutes ago. So educate us. Um, I'm a big proponent of uh, free market medicine. And uh, uh, healthcare is an aspect of our economy in the United States 
that is uh, hardly a free market enterprise. It's um, it is a uh, uh, the healthcare economy is very controlled. The government is the federal government is the largest purchaser. Government in the whole is the largest purchaser of healthcare in the United States of America. So we really have socialized medicine, mm-hmm. and uh, I have been uh, very active and a member of the board of uh, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, D, the number four, pcfoundation.org. And uh, this is a healthcare think tank run by practicing physicians who can articulate the politics, policy, business, and the delivery of healthcare. And, um, and it's a very unique group and has very unique expertise. And we advocate for free market medicine because it's better, foremost, it's better for the patients. And it saves them money and makes healthcare affordable. Healthcare is not expensive. Healthcare in the distorted American healthcare economy is expensive. Health insurance is expensive. It doesn't need to be expensive. And uh, because we insure, which means we pay for, services we don't use and that adds to the cost and so we know that free market prescriptions are cheap Mm -hmm. and they're not expensive and i'll I'll give you an example a real life example so and this is a nonpartisan issue because we all have and need health care and notice i'm not using the word insurance i'm using health care yeah and, uh, uh, and government and politics from both sides of the aisle have equated health care with health insurance. And that really distorts the argument and distorts the discussion. And to the detriment of first and most importantly, the patients, and secondly, the doctors. And what And the example is one where a Republican Congress with a Republican president passed Part D of Medicare, Mm -hmm. Medicare drug benefit, with the excellent intent of helping American seniors. And here is an example of what happens when government gets in the way of the free market. So prior to Part D... I had patients who were seniors who did not have a drug benefit, or some that did have a drug benefit, but would like the best deal. And so, for example, I'm a urologist, so some of my patients are on alpha blocker medications, and one of them was called Cardura. And Cardura went generic, and so it was Duxazacin. And I had hundreds, I still have hundreds, maybe thousands of patients on this medication. And um, um, and so before Part D of Medicare, Walmart was marketing generic medications for a reasonable price. And they had a list. And it was called the $4 list. And they had several hundred medications that were generic that were on the $4 list. And it was $4 a month or $10 for three months, okay? Now, Walmart doesn't do anything unless they make money doing it, Mm -hmm. at least in their stores. And so they were happy to give my patients Cardura. The patients would walk in there. The patient would tell them, do not run the insurance, just give it to me cash. And they'd plop down $10 bill and take away three months worth of medicine, all right? Walgreens saw this and decided uh, we're losing market share, and they did the same thing. They had their own $4 list and $10 for three months, and it was the same medicines on the same list because basically the generic medications. Because how much do pills cost? Right? There's a cost. For sure. So when I was a resident, And when we looked at cultures where people had infections, for example, at the VA, the VA computer system at the time, when it listed which antibiotics would be appropriate for an infection, 
would list in another column the price per pill, which is the price the VA was paying per pill. And some of those pills were $10 a pill, and some of them were two cents a pill. So if it's a generic medication that's produced for millions of people, you can pretty much bet that it's pennies a pill. Sure. Single pennies a pill. So obviously, if Walmart is selling 90 pills for three months supply for 10 bucks, and those 90 pills are costing three, four cents a pill, okay, if you do the math, they're still making money. They're mm-hmm. making eight bucks on a $10 prescription. That's not a bad profit margin. That's 80%. The patient, however, thinks they're getting a good deal because they are. So in comes Part D Medicare. Suddenly, everybody has drug coverage, right? Okay. So now the $4 list went away. It vanished overnight. It vanished from Walmart and it vanished for Walgreens. Because all those seniors that needed help with their prescriptions, they just got help. The government helped them. Okay. Fast forward to a few months ago. I have a patient who's a veteran. He served our country, deserves to have his drug benefits covered. So he asked me for a prescription for this same medication, Cardora. The generic for Cardora. And I asked him, what do you, why, why do you need this prescription? You already have a prescription on file at the local pharmacy. He says, so I can take it to the VA. I said, what do you need to take it to the VA? You already have drug benefits. You have the Part D. The Part D covers this. It's, it's a cheap generic medication. I mean, it was on the $4 list. So he said, no, no, no. It doesn't cost me 4 bucks. It cost me $30. I said, wait, 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 wait. You're paying $30 for this three-month prescription? He goes, yes, but at the VA, they don't charge me anything for this. And I said, they shouldn't. You served your country. And so I gave him a prescription. But then I started thinking. So before Part D of Medicare in the early 2000s, Walmart was making 10 bucks for a three-month supply of this medication. Now the patient share is thirty dollars mm-hmm. for this three month prescription. But wait a minute. I pay my taxes and you pay your taxes. And those taxes are funding Medicare. And Medicare is funding Part D. And the patient's paying premium for Part D. And I'm sure that the insurance is paying something too. Mm-hmm. Let's say they just paid 50% benefit. That means that that 90-day prescription, the pharmacy's probably collecting $30 from the taxpayers, $30 for the patient, and a prescription they were happy to sell for 10 bucks, and making probably 80% percent profit so they're making 80 percent margin at 10 bucks the margin now is ridiculous the taxpayer is paying 30 bucks for a 10 dollar prescription the patient's paying 30 bucks we didn't help our seniors Mm -mm. we boxed them in into a system where the free market is not available to them Mm -hmm. and they're paying in partnership with the taxpayers that individual is paying 30 bucks plus 30 bucks is 60 bucks for $10 prescription. The system is very broken. And what's broken about it is that it's not a free market economy. A government intervention. Correct. With excellent intention. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have to say about <laughs> how free market medicine oh my goodness. fixes the problem mm-hmm. of making healthcare affordable. And now it, they now they want Medicare for all. Correct. That means everything will be more expensive. Oh my goodness! Well, I was completely unaware of your activities, and uh, no wonder we connected from. Uh, 
you know, just the way you think. I had no idea that you were active in the free market in medicine. I mean, that's awesome. I like the way you think, sir. And I'm going to check this out myself. I'm going to go in there and so do you do, you do podcasts, radio shows? Um, uh, our, our foundation uh, puts on a, a, a radio show every Thursday. Um, and uh, uh, Hal Schurz and uh, Mike Karuchek uh, put together, put these podcasts together. And they have all kinds of guests from all aspects of the delivery of healthcare, um, and real experts on the del- free market medicine from direct primary care which is a membership model uh, which doesn't bend the cost curve down for primary care it like destroys the cost curve and um, uh, the president of our uh, foundation Dr. Lee Gross from Florida he is one of these direct primary care doctors and his lecture you see his basic lecture on direct primary care and you look at it and all you can do is just stop yourself from pulling your hair out because you're like, what? we can basically provide primary care for everybody in the country for pennies on the dollar for what we're paying now. Mm-hmm. What the patient is paying, what the government's paying, what the insurer is paying, what the, I'm sorry, not the insurer, the purchaser of the insurance, which is usually either the government or the employer. But even the individual. I mean, it's it's what what we do with uh, uh, they've, there's podcasts there about cash surgery, where sometimes it's cheaper to have a surgery done for cash as opposed to use your insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to have the right type of avenues of delivery available because free market creates competition, and what that does is it drives price down and quality up. And the two main examples that you use this uh, to demonstrate this process are plastic surgery. As if you look at plastic surgery over the years, the cost of plastic surgery has progressively decreased, and the quality of plastic surgery overall has increased. And the ultimate example is LASIK surgery. Mm -hmm. If you look at LASIK surgery, when it was coming out, it was over $1,000 an eye. And now it's way below that, yet every year there's a newer laser, better laser, better technology, et cetera, at a lower price. And so that's an area where there's no no insurance and no government intervention into the economy of those two subsections of health care. No third-party payer. There is no third-party payer. And what you get is better pricing, better quality it's a free market that's the free <laughs> market and that. and and so who's going to protect the patients well the government will there's still yeah, regulation right. there's still oversight sure um you know there's still the, the job of a, of the physician is still to protect the patient first do no harm which needs to continue being an oath at the graduation of medical schools first do no harm but Part of that Hippocratic Oath also needs to include first do no financial harm. So that is an important aspect of the Hippocratic Oath that we need to remember. So when we prescribe medications, we need to make sure our patients can actually afford it mm-hmm. or that they're going to take that medicine, not have to skip eating or paying rent in order to afford that medicine or have to put it on their credit card and finance it. So it's our job to try to get health care to the patient affordably. But uh, uh, I think there's there are so many forces um, and so many 800-pound gorillas in the uh, health care policy rooms uh, that forget that it's all about the patient and that the patient gets their care from the doctor and if you just remove all these gorillas away and just leave the patient and the doctor, the patient does better, and the doctor does better. But uh, the important thing is the patient does better. Somebody's going to get healed, 
and somebody's going to get paid, and it's a fair and equitable exchange. Absolutely. The free market. I love that. Well, I didn't know that about you, um, Ori, and I'm excited to even hear that. It makes sense to me why we connected so well because, you know, we think very similarly. <laughs> so do you have any additions you want to add? I'm sure I'll think about it later. Right. Well, Probably we can at 2 a.m. Listen, we could do another podcast on free market medicine. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> thank you for tuning in, and I uh, can't wait to see you next time. Y'all check out the work that um, Ori Hample has done with Doctors for Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Docs for Patient Care Foundation. I just discovered this just like you. I didn't hear about it, so I can't wait to go check it out. Thank you very much, Ori. I appreciate you making time to stop by. Thank you. You're welcome.